you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. This week, Freddie Gray writes our cover on the next president. Will it be Joe Biden? We also take a look at the impossible position on coronavirus lockdowns in the UK. And at the very end, how should you sign off on an email? First up, Freddie Gray, the editor of our American edition, writes the cover piece this week, asking what a Biden presidency would look like. He joins me now together with Evan Osnos, a staff writer for The New Yorker whose recent biography on Biden is just out. So, Freddie, to start with, can you tell us what the poll situation is like for Biden at the moment? Uh, Well, it looks very much like he's winning. And, I mean, I increasingly distrust polls. I think they may be very wrong but it's hard to argue with them at the moment. I mean, if you look at uh, women voters or senior voters and, and these key demographics, it looks very much as though Biden is going to win this election, possibly by a landslide. And you sort of hope that in a way it will be a landslide, because I think that's the only result that will leave America not in a state of civil war. I know that sounds stupid, but I'm actually not exaggerating. Uh, is, is a clear Biden landslide. Yeah, and do you think he will win? In your, what, what is your instinct? What does your gut tell you? I, do, I have no, I have no gut, and I don't make predictions. I, all my <laughs> predictions are stupid. Uh, I tried, <laughs> but I did. I, but I, I did realize writing this piece. I did realize I've actually been writing pieces about how weird and and funny Joe Biden is for for quite a few years. The first piece I ever wrote for the Spectator was called Vice President Plonker, and it was about Joe Biden. And I find him this fascinating figure because yeah. he makes all these, um, Evan will tell us more about this, but he makes all these amazing gaffes all the time. And they're sort of spectacular gaffes. They're not even stupid or funny. They're just weird a lot of the time. And yet he just keeps going on and on and on. And he's one of these strange Widmapoolian characters that just keeps rising. Yeah, Freddie, you mentioned in your piece that in recent days he's forgotten Mitt Romney's name and even whether or not he was running for the White House or the Senate. Yes. So, <laughs> Evan, you're, you're his biographer. Do you think he's got it in him to last a true four-year term if he wins this election? Yeah, you know, I, I, it occurred to me when I read Freddie's terrific piece that more than a few of us have forgotten Mitt Romney's name now and then. I, I think, <laughs> you know, part of it, as, as Freddie has so astutely observed, is that Biden's been doing these kinds of things for a very long time, which slightly undermines Donald Trump's argument that he's, you know, rapidly losing his mind. I mean, Biden was known for gaffes in 1987, the last, <laughs> the, you know, first time he ran for president. And what I find interesting about him is they are in many ways often what I would describe as crimes of passion. They are things that he says when he gets worked up and he doesn't have total control over his mouth. And he was once sort of pressed on it and he said, look, uh, when I get angry, I exaggerate, uh, but I don't set out to make things up out of whole cloth. And I think you know, as, if you sort of compare it to Donald Trump's patterns of shall we say, invention and fantasy. Biden at this point is not, you know, musing about buying Greenland. Uh, he doesn't seem to think that people like Frederick Douglass are still alive. So each of them brings something to the table when it comes to that one. 
Evan, our cover piece this week, um, the picture itself is Biden in a wheelchair, uh, wheeled by Kamala Harris. It's a bit mischievous, but do you think there's any truth in that? You argue that perhaps he's not just, he's not senile, he's just gaff pro anyway. Well, I think, you know, the, the truth is, let's be blunt, he is a 77-year-old man, he's not 37, he is slower than he was uh, 10 years ago. But I think like a lot of things this year, we've learned to rely on the doctors, uh, not the politicians or dreary pundits like myself. And the doctors are clear on this. They say, according to his most recent physical, Joe Biden is a vigorous, healthy man of his age. Donald Trump in this moment is suffering a more compromised physical position. But look, Biden is is more robust than he might look when you get him into a conversation of some substance. And when you write down what he says, you look at the transcript, the honest answer is he's often looks a little bit better on the page than he does when you're listening to him. There is a, a, a sort of depth and substance to what he's saying that can be, uh, I don't want to sort of, you know, vindicate or defend him, but it gets, it gets disguised by the fact that he often stumbles over his own tongue. Well, I, th- I think that's really interesting. Evan. And I think it, it something that occurred to me writing this piece was that just as Trump, a lot of the time people used to say about Trump, you know, it, it seems to be this moronic campaign, but actually he's very subtly appealing to uh, blue-collar voters in swing states. You can sort of say the same thing about Biden, in that it seems to be this submarine campaign where he's just hiding in a basement and occasionally he appears and he says something really stupid and, and then everyone pretends it hasn't happened and it all goes away. But he is sort of appealing. There's the Buy American uh, slogan that he's adopted. He's sort of clever... And the campaign is smart in ways that perhaps we don't give him credit for because he seems like such a doddery old man, just in the way that we don't give Trump a lot of credit for his political instincts because he seems insane too. No, that's exactly right. I think in some ways the, the, the hidden story of Biden's candidacy is the fact that everybody from moment one has been laughing at it, saying he's a man out of his time, his, you know, he's put him on the shelf, he's clearly finished. And what did he do? He beat a field of competitors, all of whom were younger, more dynamic, certainly more popular in the kind of most obvious sense. And he did it partly because he understood actually where the electorate was. The electorate is more conservative in the Democratic Party today than the sort of bleeding edge of the left end of it would appear. It is not in the end Bernie Sanders. It is something that looks and sounds and probably behaves a little bit more like Joe Biden. Evan, sorry to interrupt. I just want, I just wonder, I mean, what do you think the Democratic base, you know, we keep hearing that it's becoming radically left. I'm sure that's a sort of right wing talking point to a certain extent. But I think there's some truth in it, too. I mean, do they see Biden as a sort of way in a, a Trojan horse, if you like, to to government? Well, I think, look, as a statistical matter, we know that the Democratic Party today, when it was polled, uh, describes itself, more than half of the Democratic Party describes itself as, quote, conservative Democrats. But they're not the vocal ones. They're not certainly the ones on social media. And they're not the ones who gain the most attention. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Bernie Sanders, and so on. The progressive left end of the party really reviled Joe Biden in this campaign. They ran as aggressively against him as Donald Trump did. And then they lost. And as a result, they've had to accommodate to that fact. And so what they see is a reality bearing down on them, which is they're about to have a Democratic president for four years. Some of that may be Kamala Harris. We'll see. But the truth is they're going to have to figure out a way to have some influence. But the truth is, I think that around Joe Biden, 
and anybody who's been following him for a long time, as you have, knows this, he has this core group of loyalist, very centrist, old-line Democrats. A lot of them, frankly, look the way he does. They're mostly old white men, but they are not fire-breathing radicals, and they are going to be quite a tough and seasoned group of White House practitioners who are pretty good at defending their own perimeter against incursions from the outside. And Freddie, you also write that he'll be bringing back some of the Obama team as well. Yes. So I think this is my pet theory, and it's it's a boring and, and fairly predictable one, that you will just have a reversion to the Obama team pre-2016. So Susan Rice may be Secretary of State. John Kerry will be involved. The Iran deal that the Obama team was so proud of will be sort of stitched back together again. That may be good. That may be bad. I, I don't pass judgment on that. Climate change accords, the Paris climate deal, will will be will go back into that. We'll go back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So we'll go back to this sort of multilateral world mm-hmm. that we had before Trump came along and ruined everything for these guys. And I think that's kind of inevitable. I, I mean, we'll, we'll see whether he wins the election, but I think if he wins the election, that's kind yeah. of inevitable. And Evan, what about Kamala Harris? Because a lot of people will think that she uh, will be quite a, like a de facto president. Well, I think to Freddie's point, number one, there will be to some degree a restoration of the Obama class, we'll call them, with some important distinctions. I broadly agree that they come in with some of those commitments to things like the integrity of diplomacy, the fact that alliances matter and so on, which would be a change from the Trump years. That's such a nicer way of putting it than I did. But, you know, what what I also think is interesting, Freddie, as you've probably seen, too, is that they are a slightly changed group as well. If you take somebody like Jake Sullivan, who's going to be a senior figure inside Biden land, he was, after all, one of Hillary's senior advisors. He's a national security specialist. He's very much of the view that the role of the United States has been changed in a deep way and that we can no longer rely on the kind of, you know, old Biden style flag waving democracy first approach that we have to be in a sense a little more modest about what our influence is. Maybe not quite the withdrawal that Donald Trump is advocating, certainly, but something more realistic about the nature of power in the world. Where does Kamala Harris fit into this? I think, interestingly, because Joe Biden was vice president, he has a very deeply held view of what a vice president should be. And by that, I mean he sees the vice president as a loyal and subjugated position, frankly, to the president. He does not like a vice president who goes out on on his or her own, who's, you know, sort of running a crypto candidacy for president. And I expect that Biden and the people around him will be pretty vigilant about using their experience in the White House, which is pretty deep. A lot of his people have been there before in making sure that they don't feel like they're being outshone by Kamala Harris, who, after all, is probably a future leading light in the party now. And Freddie, finally, I just wanted to ask you about the feeling amongst Republicans and people who might want Republicans to win. We've got a piece by Kate Andrews, our economics correspondent, uh, in this week's magazine as well, about how she's a Republican, but she's still going to vote for Biden. Speaking to her and a few other Republicans, it seems like they actually think a few years out of power for the party might be good if it sort of resets because they don't like Trump. Do you think that's a prevailing feeling on that side of the argument? I don't know. I I think to a large extent it has become the party of, of, the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. And I think, you know, you have these never Trump Republicans and then you have people like Kate who just find Trump just too disgusting to deal with. But I just think, I mean, much as I admire Kate and I liked her piece, I just don't know if there's that many voters in that space. And so I wonder if if Trump loses this election, 
and so the Republican Party decides it has to completely change again, which electorate are they going to appeal to? Who, who votes for a Republican Party without Trump? Who votes for Trumpism without Trump? It, it, these are interesting questions, and I, I don't really mm. know the correct answer. You know, in some ways, there's this great unclaimed territory waiting for somebody in American politics, and that's the center-right. And it's possible that you begin to see the, you know, the shards of the Republican disaffected never Trumpers, some of the people uh, who have organized sort of on Biden's behalf, but remain themselves fundamentally conservative, that you might begin to see the sort of articulation of a new conservative manifesto in America, because what Trump leaves behind if he loses is weak, both politically and ideologically, I suspect. I agree, Evan, in many ways, but I just wonder whether these people are sort of institutionally strong in the media and think tanks and so on, but whether they, I mean, could a party that is centre-right in America, or what we're defining as centre-right, succeed? I I have doubts. Yeah, I don't see it as a new party. I think we've got all these structural barriers that make that impossible. But you can see the way that, in the same way that Trump was able to achieve this kind of hostile takeover that just reformed how individual Republican politicians saw their own interests, I'm not counting out the idea that some you know, let's call them the kind of clever opportunist on their way up. Uh, Somebody like Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, one of these types is going to see a lane and begin to exploit it. And it it may not be that it's just going to sort of limp along in the in the fractured remnant of Trumpism. That's the interesting question to me. I'm not sure it's right, but it's it's at least an opportunity. That's really interesting, Evan. And Freddie, thank you very much. But we'll see if Trump actually leaves. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Next, British politics has been febrile in the last couple of weeks. Local lockdowns are taking up almost all of the bandwidth for the government. And Boris is in an impossible position, so writes James Forsyth in his political column this week. James joins me now, together with Conservative Homes editor Paul Goodman. So James, how tight is the bind that Boris is in? The bind that he's in is that the government's policy since the end of the first lockdown has been to control the virus while keeping the economy as open as possible. And I mean, the problem is those two things are coming more and more into conflict. Uh, You saw that with this sage recommendation for a circuit breaker lockdown made on the 21st of September. Boris Johnson chose not to go for that. So he, he is now no longer following the science or being guided by the science. He is, I think, quite rightly charting his own course. And he's not alone as a leader in doing that. You had the Irish governor, Michael Martin and Leo Varadkar, in a very similar situation, reject the advice from their scientists to move the country from tier two to tier five, which is a kind of, almost a kind of soft lockdown. Instead, they only moved it to tier three. But I think the problem for Boris Johnson is that if you are charting a middle course, you do end up pleasing nobody, essentially. He's going to get attacked from the kind of Keir Starmer, public health angle of, well, why aren't you doing a circuit breaker? Well, I think Tory MPs have become more sympathetic to Boris Johnson since Keir Starmer came out for this circuit breaker. I still think he's getting a lot of flack from Tory MPs for the restrictions there are on the economy. I thought it was very striking on Monday's statement. In the first 50 minutes, there were only kind of two softball questions to Boris Johnson. Lots of questions from Tory MPs were sceptical or outright hostile. I think the other problem with this regional approach is... Not only do you get this unfortunate sense of, you know, the Tories are doing this to the north, but you're also getting lots of Tory MPs saying, well, my seat 
has the lowest COVID numbers in the area. So why is it in that category? You have Andrew Mitchell, former chief whip, backing up Andy Street, the Tory mayor of the West Midlands, and saying, well, we're in the wrong sector. We should, we're in two when we should be in one. And I think it always poses this huge challenge to Boris Johnson, which is how do you steer this course? Because part of the problem is the government still doesn't have good enough data and good enough information to go hyper-local. I think when we first talked about this idea of kind of South Korean-style lockdowns, I think people thought this would mean that a, a particular small area would be locked down. We're now in a position where London is going to be under the same regime for the whole city, that's going to be 10 million people, depending on how high the infection rates go. Th- these, aren't, these are kind of regional lockdowns, uh, rather than a kind of scalpel-like intervention. I think that the government hoped they would be when they first moved to this policy of local lockdowns back in kind of April, May time. Paul, just on that disillusionment from the Conservative backbenchers, I thought one particularly interesting thing in James's column was about how much they rated Varadkar for standing up to the scientists, as it were. But James points out that actually Boris Johnson had done something similar, except in private, and so got none of the credit. So should he have actually made more of a song and dance about it? In some ways, Ireland's got a slightly more direct and informal political culture. So it's not surprising in a way that Varadkar should have said in public something that Boris Johnson would want to say in in private for all uh, the Prime Minister's reputation for being a bit of a loose cannon. I just want to pick up on something James said that seems to me fundamental to what's happening now, which is uh, James talked at the start of his remarks about the government trying to balance keeping the economy open and saving lives, lives and livelihoods. The central problem they have is that the strategy they unveiled quite late for doing this in the spring, which is this test and trace and incarcerate, just simply isn't working to the standard required. You need to follow through something like 80% of contacts, and they're just not doing it. No one I've talked to, I mean, James will say what he wants to say about this in a moment, but I I bet it's the same. No one thinks they can get this right quickly. So, because it's not working, because you can't have these targeted lockdowns that James referred to, you're having these big area lockdowns. So the Labour council leaders and mayors within those areas say, we're being treated unfairly. Those Tories out there in the adjoining areas, they should be locked down with us. It's political prejudice. And the Tories in the outlying areas say, hey, but our COVID rates are are lower. Why should we be penalised? Because you need to lock down the big city that's our neighbour. So he's in a very difficult position here. The advantage that he's got is that, sure, you know, there are lots of complaints about regional lockdowns and the unfairnesses and the disparities and so on. But a national lockdown single national lockdown imposed by this government would be very difficult now to carry through the Conservative Party. And so a problem for Starmer uh, in doing what he's done is that there are pluses for him and there are minuses. And one of the minuses is, as James said, that Tory benches have, have rallied behind Boris Johnson a bit because they do not want another national lockdown because increasingly they're focused on the economic harm that the the present situation is is brought about and also the other healthcare harms other than COVID. So James, is the way out of this for Boris Johnson not to decide on a circuit breaker or not, but to fix test and trace? Test and trace is the greatest subject of ire on the Tory benches. Uh, as one Tory MP put it to me this week, you know, it's a Rolls-Royce price for a Morris Minor with no engine. I mean, it's 12 billion quid. That is a serious amount of money, even given the amount of cash that the government has thrown at 
fighting the virus. And I think the problem is that it is not... I mean, this whole idea of devolving it down to local councils is a sign that it is not working in its current form. And as Paul points to the statistics show, that it, it's not doing that. And I, I think that that does make things very difficult because that was you know, meant to be the kind of key weapon in avoiding this second national lockdown. And I also think the other thing which is difficult, though, is I think Keir Starmer is setting up a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose situation with this, which is if Boris Johnson goes for a lockdown at some point, uh, circuit breaker, sorry, to use the current parlance, Keir Starmer will say, well, you should have done it weeks ago and fewer people would have died if you'd followed the science, in inverted commas, and gone with the SAGE recommendation when it was made. On the other side, you've got a situation where if he doesn't do it, and the mortality rate is high this winter, and we'll never know the counterfactual of what the circuit breaker would have done. Keir Starmer will say, well, more people have died because he didn't follow the scientific advice. And I think on Paul's point, it's the wedge Starmer is quite obviously trying to drive between Boris Johnson and his backbenchers, which is bring the circuit breaker forward, we'll vote for it. Now, it's worth remembering that 42 Tory MPs rebelled on Tuesday night on various COVID measures, another 18 abstained. These are on relatively mild restrictions that you've got 60 Tory MPs not voting with the government. I think if the government was proposing a national circuit breaker or circuit breaks in the northwest, the northeast, the West Midlands, London, you would find a much larger Tory opposition to it than that. Paul, is the way to solve this politically for Boris Johnson to bring Starmer into the decision-making process and so making Labour sort of own up to some of the responsibility? This isn't a very good or exact analogy, but of course, Theresa May tried to do this with Jeremy Corbyn over Brexit and it didn't work and was in fact the start of her really serious problems with Tory backbenchers, that they thought that she completely lost it uh, by trying to bring the leader of the opposition into the into the government's councils. I'm very sceptical about this idea because uh, Boris Johnson, first and foremost politically, won't want to lose a grip on his parliamentary party. And already, with a majority of 80, where he ought to be sitting very tight, for a number of long-term, quite complex reasons... And also the short-term reason of coronavirus, he's in a lot of trouble. I mean, as James was was pointing out, last night saw the biggest single rebellion yet on a coronavirus-related measure on the the 10pm curfew. And there will be more of that to come. So Boris Johnson is really not, I think, going to want to sort of blur the differences and cause problems with his own party by bringing Starmer in. I also think if you are going to go down that route, you have to do it from a position of strength, not weakness. He would have to, at the beginning of the crisis, before the first national lockdown was even announced, say, I have today asked Keir Starmer, blah, 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 to join a special cabinet committee which will examine all this. To do it now would be, as with Theresa May and Brexit, a sign, I can't get what I want through Parliament, because not enough of my own MPs will support me. So I'm turning to the Labour Party as a crutch. And that is obviously, as Paul said, totally politically toxic. And leaders don't survive long after doing that. James, is there a feeling in the government of unluckiness about all of this? You mentioned Boris Johnson used to be defined by his commitment to having his cake and eating it too. There's no way he could have predicted this will be how his premiership is going. No, and I think it is... I think it is very, it is also, any political crisis where there is no good option is difficult. And if you look around Europe at the moment, especially our bit of Europe, you don't see anyone finding it particularly easy to do it. You've got the Netherlands introducing a soft lockdown. You've got the Irish government in a very similar standoff with their own 
scientists. You've got uh, Emmanuel Macron going for kind of a, a kind of almost British style local hotspot strategy. I, I, I don't think anyone is managing, you know, with the, the, the predictable exception of Germany, but, but even there, Angela Merkel is worried about some of the things that might happen. I think everyone is it's a very difficult set of trade-offs to make. I think there are also cultural reasons why you know northern europe is finding this particularly hard you know, i think at the beginning of the pandemic everyone was kind of slightly amused when the when one japanese minister suggested that culturally they were just kind of more hygienic and that's why it was <laughs> uh, but i think there is a kind of increasing extent to which that kind of explanation does appear to have some truth because you know hands face space and all that and also i think the other problem for boris johnson right now which is very difficult is what the government thinks it struggles to say which is one of the issues is compliance is low and people saw the images from liverpool last night 10 p.m people coming out of the pubs and kind of having a kind of last hurrah and i thought it was interesting that if you look at compare boris johnson's words to those of joe anderson the mayor of liverpool on this they're much milder because it's it's much more politically difficult for uh, especially Liverpool, for Boris Johnson to be kind of seen to be attacking the people, and I think this is a particular problem. I think there's a genuine question about on hospitality and closing that, which is, I don't think a kind of abstinence-only approach to socialising is going to work. I think you probably need to start thinking about you know how do you make it safer, and I suspect saying you know people could go to a pub or a restaurant where you've got you know hand sanitizer at the door, people are going to be aware that other people are watching how they behave and so aren't going to be too touchy feely is probably safer than two households coming into each other's front rooms and falling back into all the old normal habits. Just as a writer of this on, on countries abroad, it's very, very interesting to note that the model for most of the Tory dissidents so far has been Sweden, you know, a more voluntary approach and all that. But actually, we've been looking at this on Conservative Home, and my colleague Charlotte Hill found, as some of the, your listeners will already know, that Sweden is in fact becoming more like us uh, and more like other European countries because it's regionalising its approach to some degree and giving uh, local authorities there and regional authorities more powers to lock down. So it really isn't easy for Boris Johnson. It isn't easy to find a clear alternative approach because even if we become, for the sake of the argument, more like Sweden and lift some of the, the restrictions off, you really can't find a model anywhere where there are not lockdowns of some sort. Paul, if you were in number 10 right now advising the Prime Minister, what would you say is the way out of the next few weeks? It's very difficult to find a way in the short term because I think Starmer has got Boris Johnson in a a bit of a bind in that it really is heads you lose, tails you lose. As James said, on the one hand, he doesn't lock down nationally. Um, He's blamed for death as a result if he does lock down nationally. Starmer says, great, you know, we've set an example. What I speak people try and do now is move heaven and earth to avoid a national lockdown, precisely because Starmer's argued for one. So what you might well find him trying to do is to toughen up the measures in the top tier and apply them more extensively if the hospitalizations and death numbers rise, but leave the unproblematic areas. I think he said today, off the top of my head, you know, about 30 deaths in North Norfolk. He'd leave them alone. And continue to argue to Starmer that there's no need to inflict these lockdowns on areas where you don't need to. That's probably the short-term approach. I think some Conservative MPs won't like it very much because it means more lockdowns. But he's just got to try and keep the balance. In the medium term, I think it's pretty clear that if a vaccine doesn't come, 
we can't carry on this cycle of going from lockdown to opening up to lockdown to opening up. So he's got to think in the medium to long term about changing the nature of the public conversation and about trying to get the public thinking a bit more, not just about the economic harms, the damage to livelihoods as well as lives, but also to the other health harms that the crisis is bringing about. If I were him, I'd be casting around for means of doing that as a way of changing public opinion to allow more political space. Paul and James, thanks very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And last, best, kind regards, kisses? How should you sign off on an email? Melanie McDonald is stuck in this week's issue and she joins the podcast now together with etiquette guide William Hansen. So Melanie, tell us about your predicament. The, the, the reason I wrote the piece is that I couldn't actually finish this email to um, a priest friend at all simply because I was havering between the kind of loose informality that I'd have with a friend and the more respectful sort of sign-off I'd have with somebody I've got a more formal relationship with. And the trouble about him, if it be a a problem, is that he's somewhere between the two. So he's not, he wasn't somebody that I could have just um, signed off for the kiss. He's a priest and an old man. Uh, But at the same time, if I said kind regards, he would have thought this is a bit odd. Um, What on earth is she going on about? So uh, I just um, abandoned the entire attempt and signed off as Melanie. But um, it it does make me realise how tricky emails are because letters were more formal or potentially more formal and of course they ran the whole gamut between the kind of dashed off postcard which I think was the uh, kind of equivalent um, for an earlier generation of our email and then the full formal kind of sign off but emails being quick and reactive and in their uh, nature informal raise um, all sorts of other considerations because it's very quickly in an email correspondence that you go from dear so-and-so to hi Melanie and in a way that's fine and it, it makes us feel more relaxed and friendly but on the other hand if the conversation in a formal context takes tricky turn if it's um, in any way problematic then the friendly cheerful sign-off feels wrong. For instance, um, I sent my landlord an email today because there have been (laughs) troubles about my rent payments and um, I got rather a stiff letter from her um, suggesting that I was in arrears and what to do about it. And so I sent her an email which was equally formal and in the circumstances I thought that was right. But when she replies to me, it may get down to the um, dear Melanie, cheers, Rebecca or whatever. And then it becomes more difficult to negotiate later on when um, the, the, the whole thing ends up um, <laughs> with me being evicted or um, looking for a rent rebate or something. So I think um, emails accentuate all our modern problems with communication mm-hmm. because informality is great in many ways, but it's not always right. William, what do you think of it? I mean, it does straddle that informal formality line, doesn't it? It does. And we use email to communicate with so many different people with very different purposes. And so how we would write to 
our best friend on an email is going to be very different to how we would write to our accountant or our solicitor. And sometimes, especially given the frenetic nature of email, you do within five minutes write one email to somebody quite informally and then the next email you write is very formally. And so it it can take people's brains a little bit longer to switch from one to another. But it can be done. It's terribly easy. It is the, the way that we communicate with people now. Letters seem terribly old hat and old fashioned now although we do still write them from time to time but etiquette changes over time and it it isn't something if we were still behaving and following a set of rules that were sort of codified in the Victorian era well we wouldn't really be here today it does evolve and one of the things that I enjoy about my job is being able to sort of track the change or spot the change when when attitude shifted. Melanie, I've got your piece in front of me right here. You've got you list nine options, which I think is a pretty <laughs> brave attempt <laughs> at sign-offs. You got. And, um, I didn't actually exhaust them because there was one more that I could have added, which is that not actually in the sign-off, but in the text itself, I tend to use exclamation marks as a way of softening what I write. So in case anything comes across as being too dogmatic or too prescriptive, I'd use an email just to say, don't take this entirely seriously or um, I'm not trying to get all heavy here. So the little exclamation mark is um, within the text, the equivalent of a kiss after it. That is to say, it's trying to change the nuance of the thing in order to soften the impact. Yes. And William, Melanie's examples range from M dot to cheers to radiantly yours to best wishes. I think a very popular option. What would you do in Melanie's case with a priest friend who is, you know, straddling that line of formality? Generally, for for people that that there is a degree of familiarity, but not being over familiar, um, my sort of default is either with every best wish or with all good wishes, which is sort of fairly basic but not too basic I mean kind regards was another one that that Melanie mentioned and the people at Debrett's recommended kind regards but quite frankly I mean that shows I think that's so awkward to put kind regards it's almost quite cold I wouldn't advocate kind regards kind regards are sort of written by the people who think their idea of dress down Friday is loosening the tie at the beginning of the pandemic, Melanie, I signed off with stay safe. <laughs> There's one thing I hate. It's um, people te- either telling me or writing to me to stay safe. Um, it brings to mind that um, the response of the, um, the Englishman in America who was told to have a nice day. Thank you. I have other plans. Um, <laughs> it's a silly, I think. Yes. And really, I guess part of the problem is that it's text based. Obviously, letters are slightly longer. As you mentioned, emails are shot off at faster pace. But also, given that it's text based, you don't can't really see what people are emotionally putting into it. So it's harder for people to express themselves. And that's why Melanie feels the need to put an exclamation mark to soften things. So things can come across as quite passive aggressive or rude when you don't mean them to be. They can. And, and which is why in, in my, my own writing and classes, I would always recommend to people if, if it is something something where there could be ambiguity over tone, schedule a phone call or an in-person meeting if it's COVID secure, for example, at the moment. If needs be, do it face-to-face on a video conference to allow your voice to and your facial expressions just to slightly soften it rather than sending something off and someone getting the wrong end of the stick. And actually what is interesting on the, the other message 
messaging platforms that we use a lot these days is that they all now have capabilities to send voice notes. So actually, when you are communicating with friends and colleagues, if you are at that level of familiarity, it's absolutely fine to send a a voice note to dictate off your or to send off your thoughts. And actually, your tone does come across then rather than sort of typing them into a into a text message. I think that can help uh, us communicate effectively. Melanie, would you ever use an emoji? Um, no, and interestingly, my daughter, who is 13, says you must never use an emoji. It makes you look like a Facebook mother, which apparently <laughs> is a really bad thing to do. If an adult uses an emoji, he or she is almost always going to get it wrong. So the only times I would ever use an emoji is when I'm absolutely furious, when I use the kind of emojis you get in Asterix the Goal. You know, the ones with um, skulls, um, mm-hmm. clenched fists, um, thunderbolts, demons and all the rest of it. That would be the only occasion when I'd relieve my feelings by using an emoji but um, using little smileys um, I'm afraid doesn't do it for me. William what do you think emojis yay or nay? Nay for professional communication but if you want to use them socially to certain friends I would use one or two ironically Mm -hmm. but really if you are relying on emojis to communicate solely then there's something something's gone wrong. Um, I think that's right. Um, you're relying on the um, emoji to do what I would use a kiss for, that is to say, to soften the impact. Your little smiley face is saying, I may have sounded like a complete bitch in this entire correspondence, but actually this little smiley face is trying to suggest that actually um, I'm a decent human being. And it's actually requiring quite a lot of something that tiny. Mm, and I suppose it's in your your new article, Melanie. You you talk about sort of the the kisses and and or exclamation marks that you mentioned earlier to there to soften. It, it's a similar sort of thing. I mean, kisses again. I would always advocate don't put a kiss on an end of an email unless you would kiss them in person. I mean, that's a fairly good barometer, yes. I think. I don't make any um, assumptions about William, but um, I think that um, women find it easier to do the kiss, 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 and in a way. It's a kind of breezy informality. As you say, it'd be obviously the case with somebody uh, that you'd normally kiss. But even in cases where you're kind of on friendly terms, I'd feel relaxed about uh, sending kisses. Except, as I say, when somebody's older than me or the greater part of humanity, which is more important than me. So where does the relationship of um, equality and, um, and ease? I think um, kisses are perfectly nice. Melanie and William, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. You can read all of the pieces discussed in the magazine this week, as well as Andrew Sullivan's diary. I and Hersi Ali, the feminist activist, on Macron standing up to Islamic extremism, and Matt Ridley on the students who catch COVID. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Thank you.